15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast, episode number 244. Oh, my goodness. I was listening to someone the other day, Skype, about their um, 200th episode of whatever podcast that they do, one of the one of the Australian national television networks. Oh, oh, oh we've done 200 episodes. <laughs> we've done 243.1. Yes, so exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But and there are many all, that have could, done a lot more than us. It could all fall over at any second, Andrew. As you and I are both well <laughs> it's aware. Possible. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, and of course, you've heard from him already. My partner in crime, Professor Fred Watson. Hello. Morning, Andrew. How are you today? I am well, sir. We're anticipating rain. It's uh, going to be very windy for the next week. We've reached that time of the year where the wind starts to whip up. Uh, as the season changes, uh, we find this time of year very, very windy. So, um, not looking forward to that. I'm not a wind person. Never have been a wind uh, yeah, person. Yeah, my wife isn't a wind person either, but I am. I like a bit of wind. Um, we've got mm. the rain already, actually. It's, uh, there's showers going through from the oh, sea. How did you get it before us? Well, it's coming. Oh, this it's is coming in from the sea. Ours is coming yeah. in from. Yeah, ours is coming in from central Australia, so yeah. it's coming in from the northwest out of uh, out of Queensland, and uh, in fact, the uh, the system that's coming through is crossing the entire continent, which is uh, extraordinary. You don't usually see that kind of a system, but um, yes, indeed, we're looking forward to this. It'll just—I uh, I think a lot of places are going to get their monthly average in the next two days, which is mm. <laughs> yay. Uh, we've certainly broken the drought. Now, coming up on this episode of Space Nuts, Fred, uh, we're going to discuss the probability that exoasteroids could be quite common, not just you know, one or two space doogies. We're, going to, we're getting dumped on from a great height, as it turns out. Uh, there's also a new twist on supermassive... Yeah, sorry about that. A new twist on supermassive black holes. And uh, we're going to ta- tackle a couple of questions. Someone's asked a question about uh, Planet Nine. And Spiral Galaxies. It's all on Space Nuts this week. Uh, and thank you for joining us, by the way. Uh, but before we get to all of that, Fred, a um, little update on NASA's Perseverance rover. Has it moved another two and a half metres, perhaps? Uh, no, I don't think it's moved yet again. But what they've done now is, uh, you know, I mean, six and a half metres. Come on, what more do you want? That's impressive. Uh, yeah, I want to lap um, around the globe. That's what I want. Uh, I think I think they'll, that'll be coming. I'm sure. So um, what we've mm. seen though is um, the testing out of a facility, which is really super impressive. It's well, it's got a name that's super as well. It's called SuperCam, uh, and SuperCam oh. is is mounted on the uh, on the mast of uh, of um, the Perseverance and can sort of swivel around and look at things, but it, it can do five different sorts of analysis, uh, whatever it's looking at, to, to study the geology of Mars. And, and basically, you know, it'll be one of the things that will assist scientists in choosing what samples to, to, to cache uh, in order that they can be brought back to Earth later on. Um, so they've been doing um, health yeah. checks on SuperCam and all its systems, and apparently 
uh, everything is in super duper working order. Um, one of the things that's part of Supercam is that microphone that we heard sounds from uh, before. You remember we heard the sound of the wind uh, on, uh, on on not long after touchdown. Actually, we got that recording, um, mm. but they've they've recorded something a little bit more earth-like um the the sound of their laser zapping the rocks because this supercam has a laser that zaps the rocks and what you do is that then the the, the sort of little plume of gas that comes off the rock is analyzed by uh the other instruments on board so uh there is a they, and they confirm yes it's a rock it's a rock. a rock. Ah, but is it a rock that contains all those building blocks of life that we're looking for and perhaps even signs of, you know, amino acids and things of that sort or even proteins? Anyway, that's all very exciting. But um, they, they, they did, NASA did send out a recording of the laser zapping the rock, which I don't have to hand, but I can tell you what it's like because I can do it. It just goes... Did you get that? Uh, of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's yeah. what it does. I had a similar sound when no, I had a similar sound years ago when I was getting my eyes lasered. Yeah, that's right. It's the same sort of and thing, except as you can see, <laughs> it worked. Still wearing yeah, glasses. Yeah. Still wearing glasses. Yes. Mm. All right. Anyway, so so oh, that's, that's you know that's a big step. Uh, it is. Uh, people are very excited by it. There's a few places where you can find some of the images that it sent back. Um, uh, oh, sent some back of them are spectacular, Fred. Yeah, the high the, definition well, the, images are incredible. That, that's right. The and and these are pictures of the rocks that they're looking at, which look just like rocks. But you know, when you you see the detail on them, and you think, my goodness, that's on Mars. This is just astonishing. Mm. So it's great stuff. Yeah. It is indeed. Yeah, uh, so we'll continue um, all, to all, report in on all, the progress. Yeah, we will. All good from Mars. Yeah. Yes, um, and and you know the, at the rate we're going, uh, by the time we get to episode um, three hundred and forty-four of Space Nuts, uh, Perseverance will have moved maybe nine point two meters. <laughs> who, who knows? Could be. Uh, look, I hope nobody from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is listening to this, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Casting yeah. aspersions on their driving skills. It's a mistake I'm, always I, to do that. <laughs> I hope they know we're joking, but I, I've, I'm told that a lot of people overseas don't get the Australian sense of humour because we self-deprecation and sarcasm are, yeah, you know, pretty commonplace. So. <laughs> Quite right, too. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I do. She'll be right. Okay, let's move on to um, the next topic. And this is uh, one of my favourite topics, as you alluded to in your email when you sent me these. Uh, it's the space doogie back in the news um, and the probability that uh, these things are being flung at us from other uh, solar systems on a regular basis. How so? Well, uh, it's actually earlier studies before um, Oumuamua, which you always refer to as the space doobie or doogie, uh, or whatever. <laughs> I, I, always, I still think it looked like a breadstick, Andrew. Um, yes, and I'll, yes. I'll stick with that. The space, the space baguette. The space baguette, of course. Mais oui, c'est très bon. Um, the the. Uh, so studies before that was discovered suggested that we would from time to time be visited in the inner solar system by uh, objects from uh, from other 
solar systems, basically things that have been slung out of their own solar system and had wandered through space for a few million years and then they passed through ours, uh, never going near enough to anything to be caught by, <clears throat> by its gravity, although it's possible that that could happen, you know, accidentally, if one of these things came near enough to Venus or the Sun, it could end up being a satellite of Venus, which would be good because it doesn't have one already, uh, or, a, or a planet of the Sun. Um, that's not happened, and this, the odds of that are very, very low. But the odds of something coming through the solar system uh, from time to time are much higher. These things are called ISOs or interstellar objects, and they uh, basically, you know, that's that's what characterizes them. They don't belong to our solar system. Sometimes they're called exo objects or exo bodies. Um, so when, uh, th well, in fact, there were two events, uh, Andrew, because. Um, it was 2017 when Oumuamua came through, but then uh, actually less than two years later, um, the second interstellar object came through, and it's a comet called Borisov, uh, discovered by Mr. Borisov uh, in, I can't remember where he is, Ukraine or Russia. Um, he, yep. uh, that, that discovery told us that comets do it as well, because that was definitely a comet. Oh. When it got near the sun, it started uh, beaming out um, the plasma that uh, comets release. And in fact, an analysis was carried out on those that showed that actually the comet has the same sorts of materials as we find in comets on the Earth, for, oh, sorry, in the solar system. Sorry, it's distracting. Yeah, we don't want to find a comet on Earth. There are many comets. Oh, no, there. there might be the debris from them, the, the remnants of comets. So that might be what makes the oceans. But anyway, but yeah. um, the fact that now we've seen these two means you can put, you can you know put a much bigger emphasis on, uh, or, or get a much better idea of how frequently they might turn up, um, and that work has now been done. There is an organisation uh, called. Uh, it's I4IS, which stands for Initiative for Interstellar Studies, sometimes written as I4IS with the number four in between. Initiative for Interstellar Studies, which has really sprung from this. Um, but um, um, members of that institute and a number of other institutes have done this research on looking at how many of these things might fly in. There's a lovely quote that I want to read to you because it is really, I think, quite stirring. It comes from Marshall Eubanks, who's the chief scientist of, of a, a number of different uh, private companies, um, space initiatives and asteroid initiatives. You can tell where these things are going. But this is a lovely quote. He says, just by proving that they exist, in other words, because these two things came through the solar system, it has had a profound effect, creating a field of study almost from nothing. Uh, uh, and it's a field that funding authorities are just beginning to re recognise. Interstellar objects provide us with the opportunity to study and in future literally touch exobodies decades before the earliest possible missions to even the nearest stars, such as Proxima Centauri. So, you know, it's, it's stirring words, and um, I, I, I react to that. I think it's quite true. Um, these things provide an opportunity. If we can have the wherewithal to grab one or at least to, to you know, do a flyby of one to... to, to put all these, like, the supercam-type instruments on it and see what these things yes. are made of and do all the rest of it. So there's a number of different uh, kinds of missions that are proposed. But before I get to that, let me just mention that the studies now um, indicate that round about seven of these interstellar objects 
probably pass through the solar system every year, uh, and the, the issue is detecting them. You've got to, you know, you've got to pick them up. Uh, with and that's we can do that now because we've got this uh, this um, I was going to say flotilla but they're not floating uh, array of uh, of, of near Earth objects. Uh, telescope discoverers and trackers, things like Panstars 2 up there on uh, Haleakala on the island of Maui, mm -hmm. uh, instruments of that kind, w which are able to look for objects moving through the solar system. Usually they're objects belonging to the solar system, but they can pick up these others as well. Mm -hmm. So I think the estimate now is around about seven interstellar asteroids per year, but only about two interstellar comets a year they're they're rarer um and perhaps it's uh, partly because of the dynamics of comets i mean comets normally hang out on the on the boundaries of of solar systems and occasionally get disturbed uh, to to fall in the thing about comets is generally speaking they're they're very small um you know the the nucleus of a comet is only uh, probably seldom more than 20 30 kilometers across uh, and um, that then forms this beautiful tail when it gets near the sun. Uh, asteroids round about the same size are probably brighter. Comets are very dark on their surface as well. So anyway, w whatever the, the deal is, um, it looks as though there are enough of these to really think about how you might uh, intercept them, how you might, uh, you know, basically further our research on them. Um, mm. There is actually another um, another quotation, uh, I think again from uh, Dr. Eubank. Uh, we assume that ISOs come from or are formed with stars and their planetary systems, and that after they are, sorry, and after that, and that after they are on their own, they share the the same galactic dynamics as stars do. In other words, this is how you start doing the statistics for how these things might swirl around the galaxy. Uh, we use the two known ISOs, one, one eye Oumuamua, and the one eye refers to it being the first interstellar object detected, and two eye Borisov, and the efficiency of past and current astronomical surveys to estimate the number of these objects in the galaxy, and stellar velocity estimates from the Gaia mission. That's a mission that looks at the positions of stars very accurately to estimate the velocity spread uh, that we should expect and as i said they think there might be seven asteroids coming in per year and uh two two perhaps or actually i beg your pardon um they drop that statistic it's not two per year it's once every 10 to 20 years so they are much rarer um the right. comets that's comets you mean yeah yeah Fascinating stuff. Uh, I, I, yeah, it is. I, I'm just wondering how they differentiate be, between local comets and asteroids, ones that are within our solar system and the ones coming from the outside that are being flung at us by you know people who obviously don't like us very much. But um, it, is it all about the angle? Is it all about the angle of the attack or the, the, the speed or, or, yeah, or it's, it's yeah, those, those sorts of things? Actually, the angle's less important because comets, long-period comets come from all angles. Um, that's because right. they come out of the Oak cloud, which is sort of wrapped around the solar system. But the uh, the key thing is the speed, um, because you know um, these two objects were both travelling at speeds that 
could not have bound them to the solar system. In other words, there was no way they were ever going to stop and, and go into orbit around the sun. Um, I think Oumuamua um, was round about 26 kilometres per second, its, its highest velocity, um, which is very much, you know, it's above the escape velocity of the solar system. So it, it comes and goes. Yeah, um, the, 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 I think it's more a case of it's it's gone. Oh, look, there's Earth. Accelerate, and <laughs> maybe that's right. <laughs> well, that it's was the thing, a, you know. Flurry. We've, we've still got this puzzle that um, it did seem to have some non-gravitational forces acting on it, which are thought to be perhaps um, uh, ejected material coming from it that have boosted it mm. in a particular direction. Um, Although just, there is still the theory that it uh, it might be alien. Uh, that that one's that's still being, right. That's Avi Loeb's idea that it's uh, mm. that, and he, he's he's yes. Well, he's just published a book about that. <coughs> yes, he has yes. on its way to be a bestseller. Um, probably the yeah. The, I think the you know the, what they've suggested. Just to, not going into detail on this, but how do you how do you intercept them? And one way is to have things. I think we've talked about this before. Have things orbiting in space that are just spacecraft that have got a mega um, kind of Lamborghini rocket booster attached to them uh, and they're just waiting in orbit for something to go past. Um, I've seen suggestions where you might have three of these spread around perhaps the Earth's orbit um, and then once the once you've sighted something, you hit the button, uh, send it off in the right direction to chase after whatever it is. Uh, and see if you mm. can get a photograph, which would be a good start. It would be fantastic to have an image. I mean, we, you know, it would have been, it would certainly solve the issue of whether Oumuamua is an alien spacecraft if we could have got a close-up photograph of it. Yeah, well, it's being chased by a Tesla, so you never know. <laughs> no, it was going to be, wasn't it? No, well, that, yes, that's yeah. right. <laughs> that was, uh, there was, uh, I mean, I think Elon Musk did look closely at whether they could mount a mission from SpaceX mm. hardware to to chase after it, and it just was not possible. They would never catch it. No, and I think that's been part of the problem so far. These things have passed us before we've realised they yeah. were there. Yeah, I mean, that's we right. were we were asleep for Oumuamua because it was Christmas, and we just went, oh, <laughs> oh, what? Um, but uh, yeah, it. Uh, we really need to probably find them before they get here, just in case they're getting a bit too close for comfort. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Uh, actually, um, Borisov was de- detected before it... Before was it? Entered, yeah, before it passed the Earth, okay. uh, or its closest. But but even that, you know, the speed was was too high. But it did mean um, astronomers could get a, a good look at it, which is why we know it had these mm. various chemicals in its coma. Yep. Okay. Well, keep your eyes peeled. They're, they're coming in Ooh. thick and fast. Yeah, it's they are, indeed. Right. This is the Space Nuts podcast with Fred Watson, that's him, and Andrew Dunkley. Space Nuts. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to the Space Nuts podcast on whatever platform you choose. We, you can find us just about anywhere these days, whatever your favourite podcast distributor is. Uh, yes, thanks for listening or watching if you're a YouTuber. Uh, and if you're um, a supporter of the Space Nuts podcast financially, uh, we just want to send out our thanks. We've had a few more people sign up in the last week or so through Patreon uh, and supercast, so thank you for doing that. Uh, it's just a, a couple of bucks a month to um, to put into the kitty. We are aiming, of course, to make uh, Space Nuts totally and utterly uh, user focused, user 
uh, supported or listener supported uh, rather than uh, going down the commercial line, which is what we are doing at the moment. But, um, you know, in time, if we can get, you know, maybe a thousand patrons, uh, it'll all be about us. We'll just look after each other. And uh, that's that's what we're, we're moving towards. So if you'd like to become a patron, you can do that through our website, spacenutspodcast.com. And up in the top right hand corner, there's a button called Support Space Nuts. Took us a long time to think of a name for that button, but uh, <laughs> after many committee meetings, that's what we decided upon. Support Space Nuts, click on that and the different options will pop up on your screen. Choose whichever one you want. Uh, you can, If you want to make a donation, you can do a one-off donation through PayPal as well. So uh, it's totally up to you. But um, to those who have signed up and are uh, dropping a few dollars in the bucket every month, thank you. Greatly appreciate it. Now, Fred, uh, let's move on to our next topic. And this is uh, one that, uh, once again, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, black holes because they are the most mysterious things in the universe. And, you know, people have got all sorts of theories about them. We're, we're only just now starting to create images of them. And now we've um, discovered that they, they, there might be another piece to this fascinating puzzle of supermassive black holes what have they found out now and is it scary <laughs> black holes are always scary andrew uh it is that um, black holes can move they um they can actually take on a movement of their own and, and that i guess makes it even more scary because it conjures up uh, mm. the idea of things moving through space which are uh, independent and able to do their own thing but it's not actually quite as bad as that um, so um, what we have is some research that has been done uh, on whether the black holes at the centres of galaxies, and we know they're supermassive black holes because we've discussed those many, many times, uh, we think most galaxies have a supermassive black hole at their centre, whether those, uh, those black holes can actually move independently of their host galaxy. Um, and that's something that's a little bit counterintuitive because the reason why this thing's sitting at the centre of the galaxy is because it's not moving. Everything's kind of swirling around it. But um, mm. uh, astronomers at the um, Centre for Astrophysics at uh, Harvard, uh, Harvard University, they've actually found an example of a supermassive black hole that is moving relative to its parent galaxy or its host galaxy. So there's an, a really nice quote that actually sums it up. I'm always very happy to quote the scientists who are doing the, the work here rather than making up my own words. This is uh, Dominic Pierce, who's an astronomer at the Centre for Astrophysics at uh, Harvard. He um, is actually the, the, the leader of the study. He says, we don't expect the majority of supermassive black holes to be moving. They're usually content to just sit around. Uh, but he says they're just so heavy that it's tough to get them going. Consider how much more difficult it is uh, to kick a bowling ball into motion than it is to kick a soccer ball. Uh, Realising that in this case, the bowling ball is several million times the mass of our sun. That is going to require a pretty mighty kick. And so what they've done is exactly that. They've looked at a galaxy. And in fact, they, they surveyed 10 galaxies um, and looked at the the black holes at their cores. Now, I'll uh, put a bit more detail on that in a minute. Um, but the galaxies mm -hmm. 
you know, they're fairly easy to measure their motion. You, you basically just use an optical spectrograph, the normal way that we do uh, measure the, the, the movements of galaxies. You've got to, uh, you've essentially got to filter out what we call the Hubble flow, which is the movement of a galaxy because of the, uh, the expansion of the universe. Uh, so they, they did that for, for 10 dif distant galaxies. But the black holes are a, are a different kettle of fish. How do you measure the velocity of a black hole when you can't see it? So what they have to do is look at the accretion disk. That's the swirling disk of material that is uh, around the black hole, swirling around and being sucked in. Um, and they specifically looked for black holes whose accretion disks contain water. Um, now, it's probably vaporised water, but it's H2O. Uh, and mm. as that water gets excited, it does something very similar to what a laser does. Um, it becomes something called a maser. And a maser is, uh, well, laser is light amplification by the stimulated emission of radiation. That's what it stands for. Sorry about all the... The, uh, the cockatoos there, yeah, joining into this sort of story. I've got the door open. I probably shouldn't have. I think they're coming in the room actually. Um, a laser's uh, yeah, light amplification. Sorry, I just want to explain for those who don't know. Cockatoos are big white um, galah type birds with a, a sulphur crest on their heads, and they get very excited and they screech. And there's usually gangs of hundreds of them. Uh, yes, usually in their hundreds. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've got a lot, a lot of them out here too. I think they're moving away. Okay, mm. a bit of peace and quiet yeah, while I finish the story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so what's a maser? A maser is the same thing but with microwaves. In fact, masers came first actually um, um, back in the 50s when these things were being developed. Uh, maser is microwave amplification by the stimulated emission of radiation. And it's a similar phenomenon to a, a laser. You get this basically a beam of radio waves. And that allows the radio antennas uh, of, you know, any uh, set of radio arrays. Usually they, they use something called VLBI, which is very long baseline interferometry. Uh, you can actually measure that velocity with great accuracy. And so that's what they've done. They use these masers to measure the uh, naturally occurring masers to measure the velocities of the black holes, compare it with the velocity of the galaxy, and nine out of the ten were at rest. The black holes were sitting, doing nothing much, as he said, at the centre of their galaxies, yep. but one actually wasn't. One was moving at 50 kilometres per second relative to its parent galaxy. Um, and um, so the next issue is, OK, what's what's causing it to move? Uh, and one of the one of the other um, actually one of the other scientists working at uh, on this project, Jim Condon, he's a radio astronomer at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in the United States. He says uh, one possibility is we may be observing the aftermath of two supermassive black holes merging. The result of such a merger can cause the newborn black hole to recoil, and we may be watching it in the act of recoiling or as it settles down again. Uh, so that's, you know, that's something that ties in with the work that people have done on gravitational wave astronomy when we see black holes mm. merging. Um, but the other possibility is that um, there might be, you might be looking at a black hole that's part of a binary black hole, two black holes orbiting around one another. And what you might be seeing here is... 
uh, a black hole, one of which has the accretion disk, so it causes the maser radiation, but the other doesn't have that. Uh, and it's it's a much quieter one. And so you don't see the effect of the second black hole. You've got one that's visible and one that's not. And it might be only the motion that tells you that they are two parts of a, a binary, two, two parts of a, you know, a, a pair of black holes that are gravitationally connected. Really interesting stuff. Um, it will need many further observations, I think, to, to find out what's going on. But it's, it's really quite a new line of study. I mean, we've talked about black holes ad infinitum over the last 40 years, however long Space Nuts has been going, uh, but we've never talked about them moving around <laughs> inside their galaxies. <laughs> no, no, but I suppose when you consider that just about everything in space is moving for one yeah. reason or another, it, yeah. it makes sense, doesn't it? It's not a surprise. Why That's shouldn't fun. black holes move too? The fact that they merge from time to time says one of them's moving at least. Yeah, it says they're moving. So, or That's the whole fun. galaxy in that. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, it, does, it, it shouldn't really come as a big surprise, but, it, um, yeah, how many and how often and what's causing it, I suppose, is going to be the subject of future speculation and study and ultimately confirmation, I guess. But, um, yes, so it's, what, one in ten, you said? Uh, that's right, one out of ten is moving, yeah. <laughs> mm, okay. And... and uh, Sounds like uh, the, the one of the ones they've discovered is moving quite fast, which um, yeah, yeah is yeah, that's right. a little a little disturbing, but it's too far away to worry us, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, the, so, in fact, this is I think it's two hundred fifty million or thereabouts light years away. It's, it's a long way off. Um, but uh, just to point on that, if it, when black holes merge, and we know this from the uh, you know from the gravitational wave detections, when they do this final spin around each other, uh, they're approaching significant. Mm fractions of the speed of light when they're doing that uh, so they become highly relativistic as we say yeah a really um, well, it's anyway. not surprised there's some uh, re residual momentum if they're doing that that that's right exactly mm. yeah so you know uh, after they've collided at nearly the speed of light you'd expect a little bit of a wobble <laughs> a, a, a mere 50 kilometers per second <laughs> <clears throat> Well, I, I, th I think I like my terminology, residual momentum. Oh, it's a great... Use that if you like. Yeah, okay. I think somebody should use that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, watch this space, as we say, because uh, there might be more on this in the, uh, in the future as they unravel the mysteries of black holes. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast, episode 244, with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and seeing with a go. Space Nuts. Well, thanks for uh, supporting the Space Nuts podcast and thank you for listening uh, on whatever podcast platform you choose. We're on many these days and uh, <laughs> I think you can find us just about anywhere. Uh, and, and thanks to our YouTube um, followers. Uh, I, I would have thought our numbers would have declined, Fred, uh, once we started putting our faces on YouTube, but... <laughs> They've actually gone up. Um, I think we've got 1,620 followers on YouTube now, which is uh, very exciting. So, uh, yeah, thank you for uh, following us on YouTube. Um, thanks to those who've uh, recently joined the Space Nuts podcast group as well on Facebook. That's a, a group that was created by the Space Nuts audience, and it's a, a place where you can uh, join like-minded people and discuss your interests in astronomy 
uh, and and you know swap ideas and uh, maybe ask questions and get some thoughts from your fellow space nuts. That's the Space Nuts podcast group. Of course, we've got the official Space Nuts Facebook page as well, uh, which is growing in numbers. So uh, join them all. Just log into everything. Why not? Uh, and and uh, yeah, just become a real space nut then. Now, Fred, we, we uh, have got some questions. So let's uh, go firstly to the uh, University of Arizona. Hello, Fred and Andrew. This is Weston from the University of Arizona in Tucson. I was listening to a recent podcast where the topic of Planet Nine came up once again. And I know the reasoning that people think Planet Nine might exist is the elongation of the orbits of the trans-Neptunian objects. I was wondering, since this is not a universally accepted theory, what are some other explanations for this elongation of orbit? It just seems really odd to me that there would be uh, an irregular orbit if there were nothing out there. Um, Love the show, guys, and uh, keep up the amazing work. Well, we'll try, and when it becomes amazing, we'll let you know. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Weston. Yeah. Uh, I, I like Weston's name because when I was a young bloke, I used to play soccer uh, for those in the UK football, and we played against a team called Weston. And, uh, it, yeah, they used to beat us too. They were pretty good uh, out there in the Hunter Valley coal fields uh, with the likes of Cessnock and Curry Curry. I played for a team called the Tanambit Sharks, which was weird because Tanambit's nowhere near the ocean. But we were the Tanambit Sharks. Our colours were red and blue. Um, we weren't very good. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I was, I was with the first team that was created. It was a brand-new club when I joined it. And, you know, you've got to start somewhere. But, uh, yeah, thanks for the question, Weston. Uh, yeah, Planet Nine, we've um, talked about many times before. There's been all sorts of theories. Um, one of the more recent theories is there is no Planet Nine. It's just a whole bunch of other stuff acting like a planet. So, um, yeah, one wonders what is causing all this influence, Fred? If there is, if there's any influence to be caused, because that's, I mean, Weston's put his finger on it, really, that um, it's, it's, a, it's a still a controversial idea that we have these what are called extreme trans-Neptunian objects, and it's really only a handful of them. I think it's, you know less than a dozen, uh, that uh, have an alignment because their orbits are very elongated and it looks as though the elongation of their orbits is all in a particular direction. And the original uh, suggestion uh, uh, from the, um, you know, the the scientists who proposed this, and a a number of them actually, uh, Mike Brown is one, Chad Trujillo is another, uh, these scientists... uh, said that that alignment must be due to the influence of a planet which we haven't discovered yet, a very distant mm. planet, and that's what we call Planet Nine. So um, so this has been looked at in great detail now because uh, I guess you could say there are two camps in this whole business, the ones who say there's nothing there, the ones who say there's something there. And there are a few people who suggest that it might be a black hole rather than a planet, a primordial black hole. That's another thing that's popped into the mix. But um, work that I think we talked about not very long ago, um, which seems to me to be uh, worth taking into account, and it comes from a group of scientists who've conducted what they call the Outer Solar System Survey, or OSOS. Um, and what they've done is looked for more of these 
extreme trans-Neptunian objects. They, I think they found, they looked in detail at eight new objects, uh, all with very long semi-major axis, that's the distance, uh, essentially the length of the elongated orbit. Um, well, it's half the elongated orbit length, uh, which is why it's called the semi-major axis orbit. Uh, sorry, the semi-major axis. So they've looked at those uh, and they, they found some that are not particularly aligned in the way that the original scientists looked at. And then they've done all kinds of statistical studies to try and account for the observational bias which is always something you've got to be careful for when you're doing statistics. You've got to look for biases. You know, maybe you only observe at one time of year or maybe you're uh, keeping away from the Milky Way or whatever. Those biases creep in. And when they account for those, um, they find that the, in fact, quotes, the orientation of the orbits of the objects with the largest semi-major axis was statistically consistent with being random. In other words, um, the alignment disappears. I mean, the, the alignment's still there, but what they're suggesting is that we're not seeing the whole picture. Because of our biases, we're not seeing exactly what, uh, you know, what is being told. And what's being told might be that there's just no... Uh, clustering at all that they're they're distributed uh, right around the sky. Um, the, the, the basically the the parameter that defines the direction of the alignment of an orbit is something called the argument of perihelion, which is a great name because mm. uh, arguments uh, used in a different word, a different way there. But there's certainly plenty of arguments going on in the astronomical community. Mm. Um, so that that perhaps is the main one, but there are there are several other. Uh, explanations that people have proposed for these, uh, you know, for these uh, alignments, uh, whether they're real or not. And there's still work going on in trying to find Planet Nine, if it's really there. Mm. So bottom line is we could be looking for nothing. We could be looking for nothing or we could be looking for something in the wrong place or there's something that we could be looking for isn't what we thought it was. Yeah, yeah it's a pretty wide-open question. <laughs> well, I, I suppose if we keep looking and never find it, we'll ultimately have to conclude there's nothing. But uh... Yeah, I mean, you, you, know, you might be able to rule it out. For example, as more of these extreme trans-Neptunian objects are discovered, and they will be because we've got bigger telescopes now, wait till the, the, you know, the Vera C. Rubin Observatory comes online. That's the eight-metre uh, mm. telescope that will survey the whole sky in, uh, I think, every three or four days. It's astonishing. Uh, when that comes online uh, within the next year or so, then we'll start seeing many more of these and it's possible that the whole thing might then disappear, that you find that they're completely random in their mm. orientations. Okay. Uh, now, um, before we move on to the next question, uh, uh, Weston said he was from uh, the University of Arizona in Tucson. Now, I understand you've been there and it's a pretty yeah. special place. Many times, actually. Um, it's, uh, it's a hotbed of astronomy, um, partly because right next door is the, is the National Optical Astronomy Observatory at Kitt Peak. That's not very far from Tucson. But Tucson has an astronomy department. It's called uh, the Steward Observatory. Uh, which um, which has many very fine astronomers uh, working there, including some 
friend of mine, one particularly good friend of mine who I still keep in touch with. We were PhD students together at the University of Edinburgh and he went on to become a professor of astronomy in Tucson. Uh, he's done some great stuff, actually. He's written some fantastic books about life beyond the Earth and things of that sort. Chris mm. Impey is his name. Hello, Chris, if ever you listen to this. Um, but yes, he's there. And something else that's there at the University of Arizona is the Arizona Mirror Laboratory, um, which is where the mirrors are being made for the giant Magellan Telescope, seven 8.4-metre diameter mirrors. Uh, and they're being cast in the rotating oven at the Mirror Laboratory and it is, uh, and that's where they're being polished as well. And that is located inside one of the buildings. It's the stand, actually, the uh, stand that people look, I think, for the baseball field. I might have the wrong sport. Oh, wow. Uh, but, yeah, it's a huge concrete structure, which is very stable in temperature uh, inside and, and empty because it's all, you know, it's tiered staircases and tiered yeah. seating. So they've occupied this with this gigantic mirror laboratory. It's well worth a visit if ever you're in Tucson. <laughs> wow. How amazing. Uh, I'm glad, um, I'm glad uh, Weston got in touch with us. To yeah, me too. To me look too. at that. And thanks for uh, your question, Weston. Hopefully uh, we didn't answer it for you because there isn't an answer yet, <laughs> but uh, maybe one day. Uh, let's continue on. This, um, this one comes from Poland, but it could be Kentucky. Hey, guys. I'm Robert. Uh, I'm originally from Kentucky, but these days I live in Poland. Uh, my question is pretty simple, but I think the answer might not be, and that is, what causes the spiral in a spiral galaxy? Uh, thank you very much. Really looking forward to the answer. Y'all take it easy. Yeah, you take it easy too. Thanks, Robert. Um, it's caused by a fairy floss machine, cotton candy <laughs> machine is what causes the spirals. That's that's my theory. Uh, well, for a while, that was as good as any. <laughs> Um, because because they they present a puzzle actually the spiral arms and it's one that took a lot of sorting out and it's it's one of those things where the sorting out took place within the time span of my career so I remember when we were fooling around with all kinds of wild and wonderful theories um, but they it's now well understood um, and you know there's the fact is that we, when we look at galaxies, we see these lovely, lovely swirling patterns. Some of them are very symmetrical, almost mm. perfectly symmetrical, looking, you know, as, as if they've been painted. Uh, so the question is, what are they made of? And your first thought is obviously, well, they're just strings of stars that are kind of wound up by the rotation of the galaxy. But you don't have to work very hard to prove that that can't be the case, um, because... Uh, when you think about the way galaxies turn, um, our sun takes about 240 million years to go around once. And that means that it's gone round uh, more than 50 times in the, you know, in the lifetime of our galaxy. Um, and so if, if these things were strings of stars, it would have been wound up something like 50 times, maybe a bit less, but something like that. And it would look like a clock, string, a clock spring. Not many people know what a clock spring is these days, but it's very, very tightly wound. They'd be I, wound I, I, know, I know what a clock spring is because my mum's dad, uh, my grandfather, was a watchmaker. And oh, yeah. I, used to, uh, I used to go into his workshop out the back of the jewellery store and I just was 
mesmerized by all the mechanisms and all yeah. and, and, he'd, and he'd usually be sitting there on his stool with his uh, eyeglass on just working away inside these little watches and clocks oh gosh he was brilliant he was he was actually an instrument fitter in world war ii for the raaf yeah. uh, up in the pacific and uh, came home to be a watchmaker mm. there you go little sideline story it is a yeah. nice story but you know when you look at Spiral arms in galaxies, they don't look anything like that. They've got this gentle curvature and they're nothing like a wound-up spring. And so there's something else, though, that's really interesting. If you take an image of a galaxy using infrared light rather than, than, you know, normal visible light, what you're then seeing is all the old stars and the spiral arms disappear. They disappear. Oh, really? Um, So... What you that that leads you to the suggestion that it's the hot young stars, the blue stars, and in fact, when you look at spiral arms, they're often blue in colour. Um, that you're seeing, they're the ones that make that uh, that make that spiral structure. So what it suggests, and they're short-lived as well, Andrew. That those hot blue giant stars, they only last for a few tens of millions of years. So what you've got is some process that actually triggers the formation of these stars um, in this spiral pattern uh, and and then goes away. Um, and that's what the answer is. And it goes back actually to the 1960s to Chinese-born American astronomers, Kia uh, Chao, I think is a big pun. That's how his first name is. It's His second name is Lin, Chia Chao, Lin and Frank Xu, uh, Lin and Chu, they were the two people who figured out what's going on. And it's basically something like a sound wave that passes through the gas in a galaxy. And as it passes through, it triggers star formation and you get these hot blue stars burning and shining brightly and then fading away. And this pat- pattern then passes on. Um, and it, it, it's, so it's almost an optical illusion, the spiral arms. They're, they're formed from the hot young stars that are being... Uh, compressed by the density wave. It's called a density wave as it passes through. And that actually is, turns out to be the right answer. Uh, that's wow. what forms spiral arms. So it's far from intuitive. It's a quite different, you know, quite a different thing. Yeah, indeed. I, I, um, yeah, I, I suppose you just look at, the, look at them and say, well, that must be caused by the, the, the rotation or it must be caused by some kind of gravitational effect, but no, it's it sounds like something completely different. And I and I uh, I believe not all galaxies have spiral arms, do they? No, that's Sometimes. quite right. There are um, you know there are this, um, this, the elliptical galaxies don't they? And we think that's because the gas that they've evolved from the the period when you've got a disk with gas in it that's making spiral arms. They're much older galaxies or mm. older. Possibly even from resulting from mergers between different galaxies, and there, then there are things called irregular galaxies, which are well irregular. Yes, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> All right, uh, West uh, Robert, I'm sorry. Uh, thank you so much for the question. Hope life is good for you in Poland, uh, and uh, we welcome your questions, of course. And please send them to us via our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Click on the AMA tab. I'm doing it right now. And it'll bring up the interface where you can either record your question um, by pressing the record button. That's how it works. As long as you've got a device with a microphone, you should be able to record. Don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from or where you're from and where you were from. 
as is the case with Robert. Uh, and uh, underneath that, if you don't want to record your voice, you can uh, do it through the email interface where you can put your name and email and location and or, you know, and the question. Most, most, you know, I guess we could use that too. Uh, but it's all on our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Click on the AMA tab to send us your questions. We're coming up on an all-question episode. I think we'll do that next week, Fred. That sounds right. Yes, I'll look forward to that. We've got some questions already in the bag and hopefully we'll get some more by then. That'd be great. Indeed, we will. Uh, But that wraps it up for another week. Thank you, Fred. Um, Despite the trials and tribulations that no one will ever know about, (laughs) it's a seamless episode (laughs) of episode 243, 244 of the Space Nuts podcast. Uh, We will see you next week. Thanks, Fred. Sounds great. See you, Andrew. Take care. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at uh, Space Nuts and uh, back to Hugh in the studio who's going to have a lot of fun putting this one together. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company. We'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.